Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. As you drive down the highway and pass old beat-up motels, you'll often see attached to the motel sign something that says HBO. It was an early symbol of a changing era of television, something special, delivered in a private, personal way that not everybody had at home. Today, HBO is 50 years old, and it symbolizes the end of one era of entertainment and the launch of another. Just as today we're going through a sea change with respect to how stories are delivered to us, HBO was the creative destruction of its day. Its motto, like Facebook, could easily have been, move fast and break things. And just as HBO disrupted television, Blockbuster would eventually disrupt HBO, Netflix would disrupt Blockbuster, and technology and streaming would disrupt everything. But in many ways, the story all starts with HBO. The word show business is not used as much today as it once was. It's been replaced by more corporate words like entertainment, media, streaming, nonlinear programming, etc. But all of it is still that magical mixture of show and business, the ability to entertain and to make a profit. The story of HBO and the way it disrupted television began back in the early 1970s and is perhaps the penultimate blending of these two elements. We're going to explore that today with my guest, Felix Gillette. Felix Gillette is the enterprise editor for Bloomberg News' media, entertainment, and telecom team, as well as a feature writer for Bloomberg Businessweek. He's covered the business of media and technology for over a dozen years and has worked as a staff writer at Washington City Paper, Columbia Journalism Review, and the Village Voice. And it is my pleasure to welcome Felix Gillette here to talk about his new book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. Felix Gillette, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thanks for having me. Well, it is great to have you here. Is the story of HBO an entertainment and culture story, or is it a business story? It's really both. Uh, HBO has had such a huge impact culturally on drama, on comedy, documentaries, even sports. And at the same time, HBO has been a business that I think business school students will study uh, for decades to come uh, because it was such an innovator in terms of uh, decisions with technology, home entertainment, branding, public relations. Um, So there's a lot to be learned from HBO, both culturally and in a business sense. One of the things that's particularly fascinating about the HBO story as a business is the way it iterated itself along the way, that it didn't start as as what we know today as HBO. It was this tiny little experiment with 400 subscribers in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it is very different, and it has evolved immensely over the 50-year history. Um, and yeah, when it started out, it was just this tiny speck in the Time, Inc., Empire. Time Inc. was a magazine company. They were trying to diversify a little bit by doing something like HBO. But it was a very experimental idea at the time that you could show Hollywood movies without commercial interruption in people's homes. And the problem for HBO at the outset was actually how do you get it into people's homes? And when it launched in 1972, there was almost no way to reach people around the country. And for the first several years, it was really limited to homes in and around the New York City area. And it was almost about to die because that wasn't enough to keep the network alive. And then in 1975, 
they make this enormously important decision, which is to try out this new satellite technology, which was just coming online. And RCA was launching a satellite that could beam video programming anywhere around North America. And the executives at Time Inc. basically said, well, this service is going to die if we don't do anything. Let's lease some space on the satellite. Uh, if we do that, we should be able to beam the programming to any cable operator around the country that buys a little satellite receiver, and then they can pass it on to their customers. So they were the first network to make this leap onto satellite. And as it turned out, that was what saved the network. And once they could get it into people's homes, it proved to be enormously popular that people could watch these movies and, you know, a smattering of other sports and, uh, you know, uh, music concerts, stand-up comedy program. It was kind of a grab bag of anything in New York that wasn't being televised elsewhere in the early days. Uh, but it was that leap onto satellite that really was HBO's first hugely important decision. And talk about the the early programming, because before they were movies, it really was sports, and, and ultimately mm -hmm. it was, was a, a, a fight that really yeah. helped launch HBO. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, the home box office is what HBO stood for. So it was the idea was anything you would have to go out into the world and buy a ticket for, whether it was a stand-up comedy performance or a musical concert or a sporting events. The problem with sporting events is that, you know, the big – uh, sports leagues, the NHL, the NFL, Major League Baseball, uh, basketball, all of those rights were already locked up and very expensive. So what was left over? And the thing that HBO happened upon was boxing. And in part, that was because HBO was in New York and uh, Madison Square Garden was kind of the heart of the boxing culture. And also what helped them was that at the time, the broadcast networks uh, which were commercially sponsored, were backing away from boxing because of this perception that boxing was too violent and commercial sponsors were wary of being associated with it. And that kind of left open the door for HBO to dig in in a major way. And in some ways, HBO got very lucky because the 80s were a great time for boxing. And as they were getting into this, there was this young boxer named Mike Tyson who was just starting to turn professional. And they recognized his... Uh, appeal to viewers very early and poured a huge amount of their programming budget into making sure that when Mike Tyson fought that he was doing so on HBO. And that was probably the most successful thing they uh, had in their programming slate uh, for decades, for much of the 80s. Right. And early in the 70s, I mean, Ali Frazier in 75 yep. on mm -hmm. HBO was really yep. a, a big deal. Yep. The Thrill in Manila was the first test basically of this satellite technology and you know we have a scene in the book of all these hbo executives going down to florida and watching quite nervously as uh the fight started in manila and they really didn't know would this technology the satellite technology work would they be able to get the fight live from the other side of the world, beam it through space, and then beam it back out to satellite uh, receivers uh, in the United States. And lo and behold, it worked. And the Thriller Manila turned out to be this amazing fight between Ali and Frazier. Um, and it's one of the you know kind of legendary moments in HBO's history. 
Talk about when HBO began to make the pivot away from just sports and more adult-oriented content and Mm -hmm. kind of the grab bag that you were talking about before to movies. And originally it was showing, you know, first-run movies on HBO long before original programming came to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, they initially started getting uh, Hollywood movies that were pretty new and they were putting them on Saturday nights. And this was very popular with HBO subscribers, but a problem emerged pretty quickly, which is that the Hollywood studios saw what HBO was doing and they said, Hey, why don't we just do that ourselves? If we cut out the middleman, we could create our own service. People could watch our movies and homes and pay us for it. So in 1980, they launched this thing called premiere, which was supposed to be basically an HBO killer. Um, and HBO ended up getting quite fortunate because uh, the Justice Department sued on antitrust grounds and eventually the studios lost and Premiere was dead. And that gave HBO a little bit of time to figure out, okay, you know, we have this relationship with the Hollywood uh, studios, but they don't really like what we're doing. We got to do something else for our customers. And what they came up initially was like, why don't we just start buying and creating our own movies, original movies? And that was really HBO's first uh, movement into expensive original programming, um, was creating original HBO movies that they could mix in with the Hollywood product. And talk about the philosophy, which was really essential, which, which, again, was one of those things that kind of iterated itself over time mm-hmm. more than a specific decision. This this policy of, of working with creative talent and giving them more freedom within HBO yeah. than they might find in the Hollywood studio format. Yeah, that was a huge part of HBO's success. And that really happened in the mid-90s. Um, you know, HBO had been wary of going up head-to-head against the broadcast television networks, Uh, in part because the TV networks gave away their shows for free and they had such great reach and they thought, ah, we can't really compete with them. But then in the 90s, they said, you know what, as great as the Mike Tyson fight might be or a Madonna concert or George Carlin stand-up performance, when people watch that, they come in, they watch for a couple hours and they leave. And if we're going to make a service that's going to bring people back week after week after week, that they feel like they can never cancel. We really have to start doing serialized programming and making TV series. And then the question became, well, how do we do something that's different than what the broadcast networks are doing? And how can we appeal to TV creators um, and get good talent when the broadcast networks can offer them more money, more viewers? And the answer, which ended up being incredibly powerful, was that they could offer these seasoned veterans of broadcast television more creative freedom. And they could say, you know, if you come do your show on HBO, you're not going to have advertisers and commercial sponsors looking over your shoulder. You're not going to have a standards department saying you can't use that word. You can't touch that topic. You're not going to have endless notes from network executives saying, hey, make these characters more likable. Hey, spell out for the viewer exactly what the subtext of the scene is. And we're going to allow you to really explore your creative vision. And that idea ended up being incredibly powerful. And once they started going with that, this incredible run that HBO had in the 90s, where you started getting 
Sex and the City, Oz, The Sopranos, Six Feet Under, the string of really big popular hit shows that were popular with critics also. All of those shows, if you look at them, were created by veterans of broadcast television. Darren Starr, who created Sex and the City, had created Melrose Place and 90210 for Fox. And when it came time to make Sex and the City, there were two bidders. It was HBO and ABC. And the reason he went with HBO is because he thought, I'm so sick of dealing with the networks. And every time on, you know, Melrose Place or 90210, we want to do a topic on pregnancy or AIDS. We couldn't do it. I want to go and do something. I want to have freedom. And he thought Sex and the City would be just like a little indie project that nobody would watch. And it turned out to be probably the most uh, you know culturally impactful show that he ever created. Um, and it's similar with the other shows I mentioned. The creator of Oz, Tom Fontana, had made Homicide for NBC. Um, David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, had worked for much of his career in broadcast television. Um, and all of them were basically, Alan Ball, who created Six Feet Under, was also, had been working in broadcast television for years. And again, this formula of saying, okay, do the show that you want to do that you'd never been allowed to do before and use techniques that you would never be able to use on broadcast television ended up being really the essence of HBO's success. Wasn't a, a part of that success too kind of the good fortune in that HBO had a group of executives time after time actually that were able to bring both business acumen and creative talent to running the company. People like Michael Fuchs and Richard Plepler and, and, mm -hmm. and others. I mean, right up until the present, that, that they had a string of really good luck in yeah. terms of executives. Yeah, it's amazing because a lot of revolutionary businesses, you think of, well, how did online retail change uh, how people shop? Well, you could point to Jeff Bezos or how did the revolution happen in home computing? You could point to Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. Atria is one of those interesting companies that has had all this success throughout you know, 50 years, all these different eras of home entertainment. You really can't point to one person. It's been a string of executives uh, that have made these decisions and a string of people that have, it's really an ensemble cast of people that have contributed to the network success. And I think that was actually part of the appeal of writing the book. It was a little bit of like, what was it that they learned? What was the HBO playbook? Who were the people that contributed? Where did they come from? And you're right, uh, you know, up to even the present day, I think, um, you know, Casey Bloys, who's now the chairman of uh, and CEO of HBO, they were all people that put time into the network and came up through the ranks and really learned the lessons from their predecessors inside the network learned what the HBO playbook was, and then pushed it forward. Talk about what that playbook was and, and how it might be defined. I mean, if you go back to the Michael Fuchs era at, at HBO, mm -hmm. how, would, how would they have defined the, that playbook? Well, like as I mentioned before, a big part of it was doing things differently than the broadcast networks. So it was kind of the counter-programming model. Mm -hmm. Um, another big part of the HBO playbook early on uh, was this idea that um, 
Richard Plepler, who started out as a communications executive under Michael Fuchs when Michael Fuchs was the CEO of HBO, Michael uh, Richard Plepler had come from the world of politics, and he'd come. He'd spent his years after college working on Capitol Hill uh, for Democratic politicians, and he came up with this idea that they talked about inside HBO called the permanent campaign. And I love this idea. It was basically that you know HBO had to. You know, customers could cancel their HBO subscription at any time, every month. And so Richard Pluffler used to say, you know, the permanent campaign is we have to be elected every single month by the subscribers. So we have to keep that in mind. We have to continuously give them things that are going to keep them engaged. And also we have to use every single premiere, every single lunch, every single dinner, every single meeting to advance the network's cause to keep this going. And that was one of the ideas. Quality noise was another thing they used to talk about a lot, which is that they didn't steer away from controversy with their programming. They always steered directly into it. And they always looked at like, what are the topics in American life that um, really get people excited and really that the broadcast networks are steering away from? And if you look a lot of the programming, uh, you know, they, uh, and the band played on, which was one of the original movies they did about the AIDS crisis in America. Again, a topic that really you wouldn't see on uh, you know primetime television in the United States otherwise. Um, AIDS, uh, abortion, gun control, um, all of these topics that uh, HBO would approach and also was, you know, the feeling from Michael Fuchs to the present day was that HBO could have a point of view and HBO could have a political point of view. And that point of view was always progressive. And, you know, Michael Fuchs, I think, deserves a lot of the credit for that attitude because his feeling early on was, I'm a liberal executive. I believe in democratic viewpoint. And, you know, we're not going to hide that in our programming. We're going to lean into it. And that tradition has really uh, kept on throughout HBO's history. Talk about the the problems that HBO faced, uh, not of its own making, but because it got caught up in so many other business situations, not least of which the uh, Time Warner merger. Yeah, I mean, HBO was never its own company. It was always, you know, like I mentioned before, initially was part of Time Inc. And, uh, you know, has been caught up in a series of corporate acquisitions over the years as its parent company got passed from one owner to another. Uh, the most tumultuous era was the AOL Time Warner acquisition in the early 2000s, um, which was a fairly disastrous uh, merger, which people have written tons of books about. And, you know, we went back and kind of told what it was like for the, you know, inside of for, for HBO. And, you know, it was, there's lots of funny stories about, you know, people realizing that when they had to switch to AOL email that you couldn't send video files on the AOL uh, system, which was pretty, made it pretty difficult to work for a company like HBO. Um, and more importantly, I think HBO's leadership at the time, uh, Jeff Bucus, who was the CEO, really opposed the merger from the beginning and then really resisted anyone coming in and meddling with what HBO did. 
there was a lot of talk at the time about synergy. That was the big idea. We're going right. to, you know, have this corporate synergy that's going to make everything more powerful. If you combine the internet with the traditional programming, you're going to get all these extra advantages. And pretty early on, the HBO executives were like, we don't believe in synergy. And not only that, we're going to protect our territory and we're going to keep doing what we do well and uh, we're going to resist. And that actually proved to be uh, the right strategy as AOL you know, basically fell apart and the acquisition proved to be fairly disastrous. Um, and so that was, yeah, a very interesting and tumultuous time for HBO. Did you find that, that HBO missed opportunities over the years because it was constantly fighting this battle that you talk about to yeah. kind of establish its own identity? I mean, there were many things that were offered to HBO over the years, Bad Men, Breaking Bad, The Crown, mm -hmm. that, that they had an opportunity to get that they didn't. You wonder how much of that is because they often had to take their eye off the ball for the corporate battles. Yeah, I think there was there was definitely a downside to all of that distraction. And I think the biggest one in my mind is after the AOL acquisition, um, you know, that left a really bad taste in the mouths of a lot of HBO executives because a lot of people at HBO had their savings tied up in AOL Time Warner stock. And when it cratered, they basically lost their nest eggs. And it left them with this feeling of, ah, the internet, those visionaries, they, they're phonies, they don't know what they're talking about. And just a few years later, you know, internet distribution becomes so important for the home entertainment industry. And in 2005, 2006, there was actually this group of executives in HBO's West Coast offices who came up with the idea of, hey, look at this little company called Netflix, where people are going on the website, and they're choosing movies and TV shows, and then Netflix sends them the DVDs in the mail, and people love it, and they have this great relationship directly with their customers. Wouldn't that be great to add into what HBO is already doing? And wouldn't this be a, a terrific acquisition? It won't cost as much. And they wrote up you know, a 30-page proposal explaining all the ideas, and then they took it to their bosses in New York and said, you know, look at this great acquisition opportunity. And their bosses in New York, I think in large part because they'd just gone through this whole thing with AOL, they said, what are you talking about? The internet, you know, this, they don't know what they're doing. This is just a flash in the pan. Netflix isn't going to add up to anything. And they rejected the idea uh, pretty much out of hand. And that's just one opportunity that they missed out on uh, that in retrospect looks like a terrible decision. But it did stem from that uh, broader uh, tumult that they had just gone through with AOL. The irony is, I suppose, that as a corollary to that, Netflix did learn a lot from HBO, oh, yeah. particularly with respect to the way they operated and uh, this sense of of supporting the creative community once Netflix got into the original programming business. Yeah, they borrowed a lot of the HBO playbook in those early years. Um, and, you know, part of that uh, what was really fascinating is, you know, HBO's advantage a lot in the 90s and the 2000s was this thing we talk about in the book called the HBO Shrug. And the idea with the HBO Shrug was that HBO was making so much money at the time from not just the cable universe, but also uh, from these DVD 
box sets that they would sell. If you remember, like the Sopranos, one season of the Sopranos DVD set would be like $100. And it was like pure profit for HBO. So they had so much money and they were just plowing that money back into programming. And the HBO shrug was this attitude they had, which is that say, you know, Band of Brothers came along and it was going to cost them $80 million. And then it turns out it was going to be $100 million. HBO would be like, meh, that's fine. You know, we'll pay $100 million, no problem. And no one else can match the amount of money we're going to spend on something we want. And that was a huge advantage for HBO because they could make shows that looked like something you were seeing in a theater that had just the quality of special effects, of acting, of editing, that was really theatrical, like in its properties. And also it could just drive other people, other competitors out because no one could compete with them on price. So HBO enjoys that advantage for a long time. Then what happened with Netflix, which was really fascinating, is that in the 2010s when Netflix decided, okay, we need to start making our own original programming and we need to start making shows too. They basically did to HBO what HBO had done to everybody else. And basically Netflix took over the HBO shrug and they were willing to pay way more than anybody else for programming. And I think part of that was because the paradigm of tech investing, if you think back to that time, was all about, okay, for a new entry in a category, we don't really care about, Wall Street doesn't really care about profits. What we really care about is just crushing the incumbent players, just keep continue to grow at all costs. And if you have to spend ludicrous amounts of money and at prices that don't make a whole lot of sense in the short term, that's fine. And so Netflix was able to go out and, you know, the story we tell uh, in the book is uh, with House of Cards, which was a show that HBO really wanted. And Netflix kind of swooped in and said, hey, David Fincher, how would you like $100 million to do two seasons of this show, which was an unheard of price at the time, and HBO couldn't match it. And so David Fincher went with Netflix and House of Cards turned into a very successful program for Netflix. But they did this over and over again, but they were just outbid competitors. And, uh, you know, it definitely took its toll on HBO. Um, I mean, the other genre that it really mattered was stand-up comedy. At some point, Netflix went out and you know, Chris Rock had been the face of stand-up comedy for HBO for decades. And Netflix came along and said, hey, Chris Rock, we'll give you $20 million to do one stand-up special on Netflix. And Chris Rock went over to Netflix and then they proceeded to buy up almost every single uh, stand-up comedy and just take the whole genre away from HBO, again, just because they could. And they could spend like that. As you write about all the time in your day job, we still don't know how all of this plays out, that the final chapter of this story, in terms of whether or not any of these business models are going to work, is yet to be written. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it changes almost month by month. I mean, this year, um, Netflix, which had had such a commanding lead in the streaming space, uh, now that you have these other big competitors that have come online in the last two years, including Disney Plus, including HBO Max, Paramount Plus. Uh, now Netflix has been very much on its heels. It actually lost subscribers in the first half of the year for the first time in forever. Its stock price has been totally slammed. Um, and, you know, it's it is it's a very uh, the evolution of this market is still happening at a really rapid pace. Um, when we started the book in 2019, 
John Copeland, my co-author, and I were kind of unsure what would happen to HBO in this new streaming era. And there was a lot of pessimism at the time. And we were kind of wondering, will anybody even care about HBO by 2022 when we finish this book? Um, you know, AT&T was taking over HBO's uh, parent company, Time Warner, but there was concern that the telecom guys would destroy the service. Um, and so, you know, fast forward three years, and it's, it's kind of surprising in some ways. HBO has had a really, really great year and a half. Um, they just won more Emmys than anybody. They trounced all the competition, including Netflix. And, uh, you know, the past year and a half, they've had uh, Succession, White Lotus, uh, Mayor of Easton, uh, and of Insecure, uh, they've had a really great programming run and actually now look very well positioned at the current moment, uh, which I don't think I would have predicted three years ago. Felix Gillette, the book is It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. Felix, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It was really wonderful. Thank you.